is the point in the service where we dismiss the kindergartners and first graders, uh, if that needs to happen. I was thinking just moments ago as the uh, operatory plate was being passed by, and knowing that I was going to be giving the sermon this morning, uh, and just feeling like, boy, if I could just spit out all the words that are jumbled up in my mind into that offering plate that that would be my hope this morning to offer those words to God, that he might uh, do something with uh, what I have to say, something bigger and grander than I could have ever uh, put together or anticipated. And I would ask you as a favor to pray for me as I speak and to pray for yourself that God might uh, speak to you this morning. So, uh, September 3rd, 1944 was a partially glorious day. It was glorious because it was the day that the Allied forces liberated France from the dominion of evil. France had been under the dominion of the Nazi regime for years in World War II. And September 3rd was the day that uh, the French government had been restored to power. And now, yet there were still pockets of Nazi commandos here and there within the borders of France. But now they were intruders. And so for the ensuing months, uh, they were eradicating the last pockets of the Nazi forces there inside the borders. And there were skirmishes here and there until May 8th of 1945. And May 8th, 1945 is what they call Victory in Europe Day because that's when they celebrate the eradication of all the uh, evil forces that were inside the boundaries of France. And they celebrate indeed. And I'm telling you that because if you're here today and you're a Christian, that you've been converted to Christ, well, you live between September 3rd and May 8th. What do I mean? I mean that the victory is won. When you were converted to Christ... Because of what he did on the cross, you are no longer under the dominion of evil. Yes, we still have to wage war against our sinful flesh. Yes, we still live in a world of sinful influences. But now sin is an intruder. And we await, we long for May 8th, the consummation of all things, when God will restore Uh, the new heavens and the new earth. And boy, we will celebrate then when he has eradicated sin entirely. But you don't have to look around long to realize we're not there yet. And so, uh, in the meantime, how are we to live? How are we to live at this point in the story? Well, the Apostle John was writing to an audience who was asking those very same questions. Uh, John calls this window of time the last hour. He repeats that twice in the first verse that uh, was read this morning. What does that mean, the last hour? Well, in seminary, they keep giving us this big picture uh, in the story of God's redemption that begins with the creation. There are four pieces, the creation, the fall, the redemption, and then the consummation. And where are we? We are right here in the end of redemption, awaiting consummation 
And when John talks about the last hour, I don't think he's referring to a clock ticking down as much as he's saying these times are growing in intensity. And in these intense last hour times, how are we to live? What does he want us to know? Well, today we're going to look at three words that uh, John repeats and three concepts that address how we are to live. And you may have picked up on them. They all got repeated in the reading of the scripture this morning. They are antichrist, anointing, and abiding. So my hope this morning is to demonstrate how John uses these words to address how we're to live at this point in the story. And we're going to ask, how is John using these words? We're going to learn a little Greek this morning. I'm particularly excited about that. And we're going to ask, what significance does that have for us? Well, the first word, do you remember what it was? Antichrist. Good job. That always makes me feel better when I know that some people are listening. Um, This word gets repeated three times in the opening verses of our passage. And this is a word that only John uses in the New Testament. And I wonder what images come to mind when you hear that word. It's a little bit of an alarming thing. You know, I think we tend to think of some big, looming, evil, monstrous figure. And that's not totally unfounded because the Bible speaks of the man of lawlessness in uh, 2 Thessalonians. Uh, Jesus refers to Daniel in talking about the abomination of desolation. Yes, there's a dragon that's referred to in the book of Revelation. All those images are speaking about a particular person or a particular representation of the devil. And that's real, but... Is that what John's talking about here? I think John must be talking about those who are influenced by that person. Because right away he says, many antichrists have already come. Well, there's more than one. Uh, Who are they? Where, Where did they come from? But John says, they went out from us. They went out from us? Well, what does that mean? Well, I think it means two things. First, uh, I think we, or at least I'll just say I, would prefer to point my finger out there that the Antichrist is some religious leader, some political leader, a Saddam Hussein type, a David Koresh, someone out there who is has this following that is clearly apart from Christ. But again, I don't think that's what John is trying to communicate. Because John says these antichrists are not people out there. They're people that came out from us. They're people in here that went out from John's flock. And what does the antichrist do? Well, precisely what his name says. What is the influence of the antichrist? Well, in Greek there are two definitions for that word anti. One you might expect in opposition to, uh, against, and then the other would be instead of. And that's the influence of the Antichrist that we see. There's always this, this influence that counterfeits Christ. I think of the passage that refers to Satan. Even Satan masquerades as an angel of light in attempts to deceive followers of Christ. There's something inside the church even 
that can counterfeit and oppose the church. And as I was trying to think, what might this look like, I thought, well, surely John must be thinking or picturing at least as one example, Judas. I mean, you can picture Judas walking with the disciples, working with the disciples. He was right there. He was in close proximity to Jesus for a long period of time. He was on the in inside. And yet his heart was unconverted. The Bible tells us of the night when he went out into the darkness and he betrayed Jesus. But I wonder, when did his heart really leave? Because people don't just randomly stand up and walk out of a church or a family or a marriage. You see, their hearts get wooed away by something else over time. And eventually, their bodies follow. The Bible speaks of Judas's attachment to the collective money bag of the disciples. And eventually, it, it wooed his heart. He was one of the disciples. And yet this, this money wooed him away. And he ended up turning in the God of the universe, betraying him for a little bag of gold. You know, and it's easy to point our finger at Judas and we're tempted to think, you know, well, this doesn't apply to us. Here we are. We're in the church. But I think John wants to remind us that our hearts are always being wooed, even those of us inside the church. And just because our bodies haven't left yet, that doesn't mean our hearts haven't or are not in danger of that. And so I think a good question that we would want to ask is, hey, are we aware of the sins that have the potential to derail us. God's made each of us differently. Each of us struggle with different things. What are the things that have the capacity to woo you, to capture your eyes, to capture your heart? Certainly some things are going to be more likely to do that than others. And it would also be important to know, hey, where does your heart come alive for the things of God? Where do you feel most pro-Christ as opposed to the Antichrist? Those are things that we need to consider and discuss. And we must be vigilant and clinging to Christ and begging Him to expose any sinful way in us so that we won't wander from Him in our hearts. So when you hear John use that word, Antichrist, consider the things nearest to you that might counterfeit for Christ and threaten to pull you away from Him. So the second word we want to talk about this morning, that was the first, Antichrist. The second word we want to talk about this morning is anointing. John repeats this idea of anointing. What does that have to do with us at this point in the story? Again, uh, a word that only John uses in the New Testament what do you think of when you hear that? Where have you heard that used? As I thought about it, I thought, well, I've heard people talk about uh, anointing someone with oil and praying for them. Maybe more commonly, I've heard people say, boy, that was an anointed speaker, or that was an anointed time. And when people will say that, they're talking about, uh, or at least in my understanding, 
that there was a real sense of the presence of God or the presence of the Holy Spirit there. And certainly that's not altogether untrue, but what we want to do is we always want to be asking, what, what is, how is John using that word? What is he trying to say? What is his audience hearing when he uses that word? Well, <clears throat> this word is used frequently in the Old Testament. And if there were any Jewish members of John's audience, boy, they're going to immediately be thinking of, of something. Oh, anointed. Yes, I've, I've heard that word all the time, using the Old Testament. Who was considered anointed? Well, of course, prophets like Isaiah, kings like David. Um, oh, priests like Aaron. Yeah, and, and why were they anointed? Well, they were set apart for special communion with God. They were set apart as God's divinely chosen representative. Any good Jewish person would link that with anointing. With, with annoying, with anointing, annoying and anointing, different concepts. <clears throat> In fact, they might even picture this. They would think of Exodus 29 and the description of the anointing of Aaron and how Aaron was anointed with oil to be a priest for God, set apart for God, to be God's representative. Later on in Exodus 29, it talks about uh, the mixing of the anointing oil and the blood from the atoning sacrifice and how it was sprinkled on Aaron and on his garments and on his sons and on his son's garments. And all of this is repeated in Leviticus 8. And so as John's audience is thinking about these things and they're thinking about, well, that was here in the story and now we're here, what, what significance does that bear for us? Well, I think one point of significance is that we no longer need any human prophet, priest, or king who has an inside track to God to speak to God on behalf of us like they did in the Old Testament. Why? Because we're in a new chapter in the story. Jesus Christ came and fulfilled those roles. He was the ultimate prophet, the ultimate priest, the ultimate king. And if you're a Christian, he has anointed you. You have been atoned. Your sins have been atoned for by the sprinkling of his blood. You have been infused with the Holy Spirit and anointed. Why? For a special communion with him. Why? To be his representative. The prophets and the priests and the kings in the Old Testament represented God to Israel. Now, as God has anointed us, we are to be prophets, priests, and kings to the world. And notice what else we see here is we see a lot of Trinitarian language. We have the Father and the Son and the anointing. Don't let anyone tell you that the Trinity doesn't appear in the Bible because I think John is intentionally weaving these concepts together and another point of application here is that we would always welcome new teachers, but we never welcome a new teaching. God has given us this word and has spoken once for all in his word. And in this passage, John is just rephrasing what he wrote in the Gospel of John. But when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. 
And you need to write that down, John 16, 13, because there are going to be some nice, well-dressed men who come knock on your door, and they're going to tell you about an additional teaching from God that's outside of the Bible. And it's going to sound kind of truthy, but it's not the truth. And we need to stand on this passage and say, not so. Again, a little bit of Greek payoff here is that we we always want to be asking when we can, why did John use these particular words? And in verse 27, when he talks about uh, the anointing that you received, he wrote that uh, in a way and used a tense that would communicate this is a one-time event, a once-for-all. This is not an ongoing receiving over the course of time, but when you become a Christian, you are anointed and infused with the Holy Spirit right there. And that anointing contains all the truth. So we've discussed how John's warning about the Antichrist's influence on us has the potential to draw us away from Christ into into denial. And we've noted that we have received this anointing from Christ. And now we have a special relationship with him. And we represent him. That's how we live in this chapter of the story. And finally, we come to our last concept, abide. Starting in verse 24, John uses this word five times in the span of three verses, and that's a way of communicating, hey, this is important. And if we're familiar with the New Testament, we're not surprised. He's merely repeating the words that were said to him at a previous last hour by Jesus in John 15, when Jesus was exhorting his disciples to abide in him. Abide in me. Let my words abide in you. Ask for whatever you wish and it will be given to you. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. Now John has done that with his life. And he passes that advice on to his disciples. And one of those disciples was a man by the name of Polycarp. And Greek historians record the martyrdom of this man. And it illustrates the principle of abiding powerfully. See, Polycarp had lived to a very old age. And when he was 86 years old, he had a dream prophesying his own death and martyrdom. And so when his captors came to take him, he went willingly. And he went before the proconsul in a stadium full of men, Jewish men and Greeks, that were chanting for his death. And they were shouting, away with the atheist, because they considered him the atheist since he denied Caesar as Lord. And so in this conversation with the proconsul who is trying to urge him to align himself with Caesar and deny Christ, Polycarp responds, For 86 years I have been his servant, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And growing exasperated, The proconsul threatens, I have wild beasts, and I will throw you to them unless you change your mind. The 86-year-old Polycarp responds, call for them. After a, a longer conversation, he ended up being burned at the stake. 
But how does a man become that manly in the face of a stadium full of people chanting for his death? How do you get to that point? 86 years of abiding in Christ and not getting sidetracked. Day after day of making decisions, circumstance after circumstance, confessing Christ as Lord. I think verse 23 is the central truth here. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Again, John uses a different tense in these verbs to communicate that ongoing confession of the Son and the Father, that ongoing confession every day in all that we face. And see, this is the one thing that you can't say in John's culture because it was just like ours. In Rome, they had the same attitude as our contemporary idea that it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you are sincere and as long as you're not a Christian. But John is reminding us that in the face of this culture, we must make that confession every day in every circumstance, day after day. And when intruders threaten us, that's what we must remember, that that's the fundamental thing. We can't set up camp anywhere else. We can't set up camp on what we think about uh, infant baptism. We can't set up camp on how many point Calvinists we are. We can't set up camp on how to educate our children, whether or not drinking is okay, whether to sing hymns or contemporary worship. We have to set up camp on that confession that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. That's what makes the church the church. And it's that profession that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is the question with the most severe consequences. And it's the question that makes Christians distinct. So every day we have to cultivate these good habits of abiding in Him. The meaning of polycarp, much fruit. Do you want a life that bears much fruit? It's like Paul Phillips said last week. We don't just drift into that. You can go out and pick up a Sunday paper and read about all sorts of business executives or politicians who've committed all kinds of egregious sins. That's the way we drift. And if we want 86 years of much fruit, we have to cultivate, cultivate habits of choosing the Lord in every circumstance, every day. It's not enough to eliminate the bad habits. We have to establish good ones. And I was so encouraged when I was working with the VBS this past week. And I was in uh, this room with a group of about 12 four-year-olds. And I was trying to stall, waiting on another group, and we were talking about different things, and we were talking about sin. And I said, hey, what is sin? And boy, when I asked that, there was a collective shout back to me, sin is any lack of conformity to or transgression of the law of God. And I was so encouraged. Those kids didn't just think that up. But families had been cultivating something into those children, preparing the soil of their soul so that they can abide with Christ. 
just as John reminds us, to abide. So John has wrapped together the concepts of walking in the light, obedience, love for God, not love for the world. All these are part of the picture, parts of the picture of Christianity. And now John encourages the brothers by warning them about the nature of the Antichrist. He points them to the anointing. This is the teaching. And he exhorts them to abide in that teaching. And there's a great picture of this that uh, John participated in for the first time. And it's a ritual that's been celebrated throughout the years up until today, and we're about to celebrate it, called communion. Communion.